a video version of this podcast is available at AboundingJoy.com and also on our YouTube pages. Well, hey guys, thanks for joining me today in Bible study. You may know, some of you know, that Vicki and I, we feel like led by the Lord, have started a new Sunday morning Bible study class at our church, Fairview Baptist Tabernacle. And we met this past Sunday for the very first time. And if you're not already involved in a small group Bible study on Sunday morning, of course, you know what I'm going to say. We'd love for you to join us. We'd love for you to come check us out. See if you like it. See if you might enjoy being a part of the Bible study with us. If not us, find one because I'm telling you guys, these are times when we desperately need each other in small groups to encourage each other and to to support each other, to bear one another's burdens, to, to pray for each other in a very specific way. So we'd love for you to join us if you can. We're in room 209 in the new building there at Fairview. We meet at 1015, which is after the early worship service. We go to the early worship service at 9 a.m. Sunday school's at 1015. Lord willing, uh, this will be our second meeting this coming Sunday. And Lord willing, I hope every time we have a lesson and do a Bible study, that a day or two after the class, I'll be able to post it like I am today. So what I'm going to share with you today, for anybody that might want to follow the study, but for whatever reasons, unable to come to church, I'm going to basically reteach what we studied Sunday. We're using a series called the Gospel Project Curriculum. You may be familiar with that, but the Gospel Project Bible Study Series started a brand new three-year through the Bible cycle this past September. So we're just now finishing up the walk through Genesis this past Sunday. Uh, The background passage for Sunday's lesson was Genesis Listen to this, chapter 37, 38, 39, well, I won't just count them, 37 through 50. Isn't that amazing? 14 chapters of the Bible for one Sunday. Mm, well, you can't look at 14 chapters in any detail. But what they've done is chosen those chapters because they cover the entire life of Joseph, the son of Jacob, and the focus was on Joseph's life. There are focal passages, though, that we're going to look at in chapters 39 and 45 and 50. We'll get there in just a minute and read those passages. But the Gospel Project Curriculum Series has an online description. If you go look it up on by, by Google or something, it says the Gospel Project is a weekly Bible study that helps all ages dive deep into the big story of the Bible. And then there's a hyphen, and here's the big story of the Bible. God's plan to rescue His people through His Son, Jesus Christ. God's plan to rescue His people through His Son, Jesus Jesus Christ. In other words, the the Gospel Project curriculum uses the whole Scripture, Old Testament as well as the New Testament, to point to show us how that points us to Jesus. So we'll be in every lesson thinking about how it points us to Jesus. Very powerful way to study the Bible. Are you guys familiar with Sally Lloyd Jones' children's devotional book? Have you seen that book? It's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. She has a subtitle on the cover that says, Every Story Whispers His Name. Isn't that, isn't that beautiful? That's exactly what her theme is in that book, that all the Old Testament accounts that we read all point us toward Jesus. It's amazing how God worked that into his scripture. We've used that book with our grandkids, some of them, and, and she just does a beautiful job showing how the Old Testament, many of the accounts in the Old Testament point us to Jesus. Now, when we think of how the Old Testament points to Jesus, you know, I don't know what comes to your mind immediately, but the first thing that comes to my mind is fulfilled prophecy. And it turns out that God's Word 
even the Old Testament is full of things that point us to Jesus. And of course, there are fulfilled prophecies all the way through the Old Testament. I have read that there are approximately 2,500 prophecies in the whole Bible, and approximately 2,000 of them have already been fulfilled. Of course, that leaves several hundred more that are obviously prophecies about the end times, you know, getting near the time when Jesus comes back, and after Jesus comes back and sets up his kingdom, a lot of the prophecies are for those, so they haven't been fulfilled yet. I read one Bible scholar who said he found what he thought were 61 major, emphasis on the word major, <laughs> Old Testament prophecies of the first coming of Jesus. And the fact that these prophecies were fulfilled so perfectly and so beautifully in the life of Jesus turns out to be really strong evidence that points us to the fact that the Bible is not a book that's been put together by men. Men couldn't pull this off. The Bible has to be God's book. God had to be behind this. Men couldn't do it. There was a Christian mathematician a few decades ago who was estimating the probability that 48 of those prophecies would come to pass by just sheer chance. And he worked it out, and he wrote a book about it, uh, and he showed his calculations and everything. But he said it would be about 1 in 10, get this, 10 to the 157th power. Now, if you've not thought much about math, that number probably means nothing to you. But the truth is, even if you thought a lot about math, that number is totally, 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 many times over, incomprehensible. There's no way our brains can grasp a number like that. But I tell you what. I think every now and then it's good for us to try to stretch our brains just a little bit, just to try to appreciate the greatness and glory and majesty of God, the genius of God. And I'd like to spend a few minutes doing that before we move on here with our Genesis study. I just think it's, it's good for us to realize this could not have happened by chance. So the way I want us to handle it, the way I want us to try to get a handle on it today, is I want us to think about the number of atoms in the entire universe. Can you imagine a number bigger than that? The number of atoms in the entire universe. Let me help you start. In every one of our bodies, our human bodies, our physical body, there are about a billion cells. These cells, of course, are so tiny that our eyes can't see them. We can see them with microscopes, but you can't see them with our eyes. They're too, too small. And every single one of these living cells has approximately a quadrillion atoms a quadrillion atoms. Now, we're already way beyond our ability to wrap our brains around these numbers. A quadrillion is a million billion. It's like taking a billion atoms, which we can't wrap our brain around either, but taking a billion atoms and then multiplying it a million times, a million times over, a billion atoms a million times over. And that's all in just one cell. So tiny you can't even see it with your eye. And again, each of our bodies contains about a billion of those cells. That's a million, billion, billion atoms in every one of us. Now, think about the earth. I mean, compared to one of our little bodies, the earth is monstrously big, right? It weighs 6 million, million, billion tons. We weigh maybe 100, 200 pounds, something like that. It weighs 6 million, million, billion tons. <laughs> and then think about our sun. A million of our earths would fit inside our sun. A million of them. And then think about our galaxy that we're part of. There are 100 billion stars in our galaxy, just like our sun, more or less. And then think about the number of galaxies in the universe. Cosmologists estimate maybe a trillion galaxies in our universe. Now, let me go back and say it again. The, the, the odds are the, that these prophecies could have, 48 of them, could have just been fulfilled by sheer chance are 1 in 10 to the 157th power. 
Now think about all the atoms. We just tried to stretch our brains a little bit, thinking about the number of atoms in the universe. Think about that. I'm going to stretch it just a little bit farther, okay? Stay with me. Now pretend that every single one of the atoms in our universe represents another universe with as many atoms in it as there are in our universe. Still with me? <laughs> you doing the calculations? <laughs> no, I know we can't begin to grasp it. But, but now there are as many universes as there are atoms in our universe. And if there were that many universes with as many atoms in each one of them as there are in our universe now, the probability of these 48 prophecies being fulfilled just by chance is still less than the probability of picking just one of those atoms out of those monstrously number of universes and atoms in all these universes by chance. It's just not going to happen. I mean, it's like God saying, look, I want you to understand very clearly this is my book. There's no way this could happen by chance. You say, well, why do so many people reject it if it's so obvious? I'll tell you why they reject it. They don't want to see it. They don't want there to be a God. They don't want to be accountable to God. If there's a God, they want him to be a, a God of their imagination that they're not accountable to. They want to live their lives the way they want to live their lives. They want to call their sin okay. They want a God who says your sin's fine. You know what God calls these people? He calls them fools more than once in his word. But that's the reason they can't see it. They could if they were willing. But fulfilled prophecy isn't the only way that God's work pointers to Jesus in the Old Testament. This is amazing. I don't know if you've ever spent any time studying a, a topic that we call typology in the Old Testament. Sometimes we include illustrations in that, typology and illustrations in the Old Testament that point us to Jesus. Typology is the study of prophetic symbols. Instead of the words themselves being prophetic, they're symbols in the Old Testament. It could be individuals, it could be things, it could be events. For example, in 1 Peter 3, Peter tells us that Noah's flood is a type. It pictures Christian baptism, he said. They're pointing us to Jesus, for example, in the Passover. If you've ever studied the Passover, when God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt after their time of slavery there, you know, used Moses to bring them out through the Red Sea. There are many, many symbols there in the Passover that point us to Jesus. Just for example, the unleavened bread points to the sinlessness of Jesus. Of course, they had to offer a sacrificial lamb without spot and without blemish. That sacrificial lamb points to Jesus. You remember when John the Baptist saw Jesus? He said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Remember that? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So Jesus is the ultimate Lamb of God. All those sacrificial lambs pointed to Jesus. All the sacrificial animals that were offered in the Old Testament pointed to Jesus. You may remember at Passover they had to put blood over the lintel of the door. Remember that? And on the doorpost. And that pictures the blood shed by Jesus on the cross. Our entry into protection the way we're protected from death is through Jesus on the cross. All kinds of pictures there. God also ordained a priesthood to exist in the Old Testament. Aaron was the first high priest. Remember that? Moses' brother Aaron. And they called it the Aaronic priesthood. And they had all kinds of things they had to do and wear that point us to Jesus. There was another priesthood, a little bit more obscure in the Old Testament. The priesthood of Melchizedek. And he, Hebrews makes it very clear that Melchizedek points us to Jesus as our great high priest. And then, of course, there were the Jewish festivals and the Jewish feast, and there was the Day of Atonement, which foreshadows the day when Jesus would take our sins away. The Old Testament is full of these kind of things. And it turns out that the life of Joseph, the whole life of Joseph, 
is a powerful illustration in the Old Testament that points us to Jesus. It's pretty amazing. I was looking at some of this on the internet before I, as I was preparing this study, and I found a page on the Bob Jones Seminary site, and they're, they're pointing out some of these. Listen to this. I'm quoting, Like Joseph, Jesus was the beloved son of the Father, who was rejected by his own people and by his brothers explicitly. Both Jesus and, and uh, Joseph were rejected by their brothers. Jesus left his exalted status to become a slave, after which he was wrongfully accused and delivered over to death. Yet out of that death, Jesus broke free in his resurrection in order to become the savior of his people. And when you look at Joseph's life, you see a similar thing in a strikingly similar way. Joseph became a slave because of the sins of his brothers, and he was later wrongly accused and left for dead in Pharaoh's prison. And yet God showed special favor to Joseph in that lowly place and brought him out of prison, exalting him to a position of absolute authority. Why? To save his people from certain death. So Joseph, risen from prison, wound up sitting down at the right hand of Pharaoh. Jesus, risen from the dead, wound up sitting down at the right hand of his father in heaven. So Joseph and Jesus are very, you see a lot of similarities pointing to Jesus. Joseph and Jesus were both sold for silver. Joseph and Jesus were both stripped of their clothing. Joseph and Jesus were both bound and condemned with two other criminals. You may remember Joseph uh, was in prison with a cupbearer and a baker, Pharaoh's chief cupbearer and chief baker, one of whom received life, the other received death. Same with Jesus between two criminals on the cross. And ultimately, Joseph, just his whole life serves as a type of the work of Christ because he saved his people, brought them together into unity with one another. That was from Bob Jones Seminary. Now, what I want to do is kind of walk through Joseph's life quickly, beginning in Genesis chapter 37. And we'll just quickly walk through this and stop from time to time to look at a focal passage, okay? In Genesis 37, we read about Jacob's favoritism toward Joseph. Joseph was the first son of Jacob's beloved wife, Rachel. Remember, he loved Rachel more than Leah. Uh, a lot of favoritism there. And she had him two sons. She bore Jacob two sons, Joseph and later Benjamin. And we read about the envy and the jealousy and hatred his brothers developed for him, especially after his dreams. You may remember that. And we read about how his brothers sold him into slavery to some Midianite slave traders for 20 pieces of silver. And then they lied to their father, Jacob, they lied to him for many, many years, convincing him that Joseph had been killed by a wild animal. Chapter 37 closes with these Midianite slave traders taking Joseph to Egypt and selling him to one of Pharaoh's officers. His name was Potiphar. He was the captain of Pharaoh's bodyguard. Chapter 38 happens to be a break in the biblical account of Joseph. We're not going to think about that today. 38 relates this sordid episode between Judah and his daughter-in-law Tamar. Remember that? But it, it's, it's not relevant to what we're talking about today, but it really is an important chapter, understanding the lineage of the coming Messiah, Jesus. But we don't have time to get into that. When we get to chapter 39, we get back to the account of Joseph, and we find Potiphar's wife trying to seduce Joseph, and Joseph refuses her. Finally, she manages to get Joseph alone with her in the house. Apparently, she had arranged it that way and had the other slaves and servants away. And she grabs his undergarment, and she pleads with him to sleep with her. But he wouldn't do it. He knew it was wrong, so he fled and she held on to his outer garment and later on tried to use it as evidence to support her lie that Joseph had tried to take advantage of her sexually, which brings us to the first focal passage for today's study, and it begins in Genesis chapter 39, verse 16. 
Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home, and she told him the same story. So she had already told this story to the servants earlier, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you brought among us came into me to laugh at me. And in verse 14, she says very clearly to the servants that Joseph had come into her to lie with her. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, in other words, when I screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. That's a total lie, of course. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way a servant treated me, his anger was kindled. Verse 20. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. Now, first of all, it's fascinating that Potiphar had Joseph thrown into prison, isn't it? And not executed? Think about it. Joseph is not an Egyptian. He's a foreigner. He's a foreign-born slave. He didn't have any rights. <laughs> he didn't have anybody to plead his case. It wouldn't have been a big deal for Potiphar just simply to put him to death. He could have, but he chose not to. Why do you think not? Well, of course, God had a plan and a purpose. But, but humanly speaking, God had told Joseph and made it clear to Joseph, you are to be a man of integrity and character. And we see that earlier in the story. Potiphar knew what kind of man Joseph was. Potiphar trusted Joseph with everything. He knew in his heart, I'm, I'm pretty sure, Joseph's not the kind of man that would do this. Joseph's innocent. I suspect that he also knew in his heart that his wife was not above lying. He'd probably experienced that before. He probably knew what she was like. But Joseph is a slave. And Potiphar's wife is his wife, and, he's, and he can't just ignore that. I mean, that would make his life miserable. So putting Joseph in prison may have seemed to Potiphar the easiest way out. Did you notice in verse 19 when it said Potiphar's anger was kindled? It didn't say against whom it was kindled. I mean, it could have been Joseph, of course, but it didn't say that. It may have been against his wife. I mean, he probably knew her character better than anybody. He knew what her character deficiencies were. It may have been he was very angry with her for what she'd done to Joseph. It's also interesting that the Bible doesn't record whether or not Joseph offered any kind of self-defense. I mean, he may have, but the Bible doesn't say. But the fact that the Bible is silent about Joseph responding reminds us a little bit again of Jesus, who, remember, he didn't open his mouth against his accusers either. Isaiah prophesied that 700 years before Jesus was born. This is in Isaiah 53, a wonderful, amazing chapter of prophecy, but he said he was oppressed, speaking of Jesus, prophesying of Jesus, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And Matthew records the fulfillment of that in Matthew 27. Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge. So the governor was greatly amazed, fulfilling prophecy. Now let's back up just a little bit here. Let's get this big picture. Joseph was thrown into a pit by his brothers. Try to put yourself in his place. Try to picture being thrown into that pit and you're looking up hopeless. There's no way to get out. And it must have seemed like a totally hopeless situation already for Joseph. But of course, that didn't stop God. God's got a purpose. He's got a plan here and he's working it out. Of course, they then pulled him out, and he thinks, oh, good, I'm out of this thing, <laughs> but sold as a slave <laughs> in a strange land of strange people. Now it must seem totally hopeless to Jacob. He's not even anywhere close to home. Strange place. He's a slave. Didn't stop God from working out his purposes. 
And then while he's in Egypt doing the very best he can, even though he's a slave, he's falsely accused and he's thrown into a prison in a strange land, strange people. How hopeless can it get? I mean, it looks so hopeless. If you're on, if you're thinking of it from Joseph's perspective, from, from that side of history, but God wasn't done. The point is for us too. now, listen, don't miss this. God knows how to work out his purposes in our lives. And when things look bleak and hopeless, I'm talking about really, really bleak, really, really hopeless. We must remember God is still in control. He's at work. He's doing something just like he was in the life of Joseph. Verse 21, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So once again, Joseph's character and integrity are coming through loud and clear, even though he's in a bleak, hopeless, impossible situation. The prison ward is trusting him completely. God's at work. In Genesis 40, we read of Joseph interpreting two of the other prisoners' dreams. They happened to be Pharaoh's chief cupbearer and Pharaoh's chief baker, who had somehow gotten on the wrong side of Pharaoh, and they'd been thrown into prison. And God gave them both significant dreams. And God gave Joseph the interpretation of those dreams. So the cupbearer was restored to his former position, and the baker was put to death, as the dreams foretold. When Joseph interpreted the cupbearer's dream, he had one request for the cupbearer. It's in chapter 40, verse 14. Only remember me when it's well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this place. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I've done nothing that they should put me into the pit. But if you remember the story, the cupbearer did not do what Joseph asked him. He didn't say anything to Pharaoh about Joseph. Two years later, we're in chapter 41 now, Pharaoh had his dreams. God gave Pharaoh some dreams. He's going to use those dreams to do something awesome. And then he caused those dreams to trouble Pharaoh greatly, the Bible says. At that time, finally, the light comes on for the cupbearer. And he says, uh, Pharaoh, <laughs> I got to fess up here. There was a man in prison who interpreted my dream and he explained about Joseph. And so Pharaoh said, get him. So Joseph came. And again, God, of course, gave Joseph the meaning of the Pharaoh's dreams. There are going to be seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. And while Joseph is interpreting the dream, again, inspired by the Lord, the Lord's behind all of this, he proceeded to give Pharaoh some advice. He says, you need to choose a man who is wise who, can, who is skilled and he can collect grain from the people over the next seven years and store it up. So during the seven lean years, you'll have something to eat in Egypt. And of course, Pharaoh, again, moved by God, said, it looks to me like I'm looking at the guy that'd be best for that job. And he immediately on the spot made Joseph himself that man. So suddenly Joseph has risen from slavery and despair in a horrible Egyptian prison to second in command to Pharaoh himself. Joseph is now the prime minister of Egypt. And eventually, when the years of famine came, Joseph had led the Egyptians to have enough to eat and enough to sell to other nations all around. That caused Egypt to come out more wealthy than ever, thanks to Joseph. In chapter 42, we learn that 
Of course, the famines reach to where Jacob and his brothers are, his dad Jacob and his brothers. And, and so Jacob says, we got to have some food. And we've heard that Egypt has food. So he sends 10 of Joseph's brothers down to Egypt to buy some grain. Now he's assumed all these years that Joseph is dead. These are the same men who sold Joseph into slavery. Benjamin was not with them. He was still, Jacob was keeping Benjamin home. Benjamin was Joseph's full-blooded younger brother. Same mother as Joseph, Rachel. She died when she had given birth to Benjamin. And Jacob was partial to Benjamin just as he had been to Joseph, so he kept Benjamin home. Didn't want to get, run the risk of something happening to Benjamin. Joseph immediately recognized his brothers. They didn't recognize him. And Joseph chose for a while to hide his identity. He had a, he had a reason for that. He needs to test his brothers. So he insisted they go home and bring back Benjamin. He kept Simeon as a hostage. But he did send grain back with them. And he returned their money in the sacks of grain. When they tell Jacob he wants Benjamin to come down, Jacob says, no, 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 we're not going to do that. He, he's not going anywhere. But after they ran out of food, he realized we got no choice. So he finally, very reluctantly, allows Benjamin to go back with the other brothers to Egypt. In chapter 43, they return. Chapter 44, Joseph tests his brothers by sending them back with their money again, only with, with, with their bags of grain, only this time he put his silver cup in Benjamin's bag. And then he had a plan. Uh, shortly after they left, he sent one of his servants, a messenger, to catch up with them and accuse them of stealing that cup. And he was to tell them, the one who stole the cup is going to be killed. So the servant catches up with them. Of course, they don't know they've got the cup. They, don't, they think that's silly. And, uh, and when they, he searches the bags, they're horrified that it was in Benjamin's bag. But here's what happened. When they get back, Judah begged Joseph to allow Judah himself to stay in Benjamin's place. The guys that sold Joseph into slavery and pretended he was dead all these years, suddenly they're protective of Benjamin. And the reason is he suspected that if Benjamin was lost, that means Jacob would die. He didn't think Jacob could survive Benjamin not coming back. And so now Joseph realizes, my brothers are really changed men. So he decided to reveal himself to them. And we pick that up in chapter 45, verse 4. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. He said, I'm your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years. And there are yet five more years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He's made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Isn't that amazing? His brothers had sold him into slavery. His brothers did that. But Joseph said in verse 5, God sent me. In verse 7, he underlined it. God sent me. Verse 80, underline it again. It was not you who sent me, but God. Now, we're going to come back to that in just a minute, so don't lose that thought. Hold on to that thought. God's the one that sent him. So, Joseph sent his brothers back to Jacob to return to Egypt. And finally, near the end of chapter 46, Joseph and his dad Jacob are finally reunited. It must have been an awesome moment. In chapter 47, we learn that the whole family was given the land of Goshen, which is in the eastern part of that rich Nile River Delta as a place to live. 
And in chapters 48 and 49, we learn that God gave Jacob 17 more years of life there in Egypt with Joseph and Benjamin and his other sons and, and his grandchildren. And, and finally, Jacob realizes his life is coming to an end. And he does something kind of interesting. He adopts Joseph's sons, which would be his own grandsons, Manasseh and Ephraim. He adopts those two boys to be his own sons, Jacob's sons. Later on, they're going to get equal allotments with the other tribes when they come into the promised land. The tribes are allotted land. But he pronounces blessings on them, and he pronounces blessings on the rest of his sons. And then we read about Jacob's death in the very last verse of chapter 49. When we get to chapter 50, the final chapter in the book of Genesis, we read that Joseph had Jacob's body embalmed. And it's just as Jacob had requested, they made the trip up to Canaan to bury Jacob there in the cave in the field at Machpelah. I don't know if you remember Machpelah or not, but it's another interesting place. It happens to be the very first piece of land in the Holy Land that Abraham actually owned. You know, God promised that land to Abraham's descendants, but Abraham didn't own any land there. He just was wandering through like a nomad. But God allowed Abraham to buy this one little piece of land, kind of like a little down payment or something from a Hittite man, in order to bury Abraham's wife Sarah when Sarah died. Later, when Abraham died, Isaac and Ishmael came back together to bury Abraham there with Sarah. So now the two of them are buried there. Later, when Isaac died, Esau and Jacob came back together to bury their father Isaac there. Rebekah, Isaac's wife, was also buried there. And Jacob had also buried his wife Leah there. So finally, Jacob himself is buried there as well. So six of them are buried there at Machpelah. And the sons come back to Egypt. And then this horrible idea comes to their heads of Joseph's brothers. And we're going to pick up that account in verse 15 of chapter 50. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they're apparently thinking, You know what? Joseph's been acting really nice to us. And he said it was God. But maybe that was just for Jacob's sake. While Jacob was still alive, he wanted to keep the family together. But he didn't have that motive anymore. Jacob's gone. Our dad's dead. What if he changes his mind? What if he's been lying all this time and he decides to kill us or make us slaves or put us into prison? He's got the power to do it. And they're also probably thinking, be pretty reasonable after the way we treated him when he was so young and the way we lied about him for so many years. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. So they plead with him. Now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And when they said that, Joseph just wept. He wept when they spoke to him. I'm guessing this was a lie they made up about their father's instruction. It sounds like a lie, doesn't it? It sounds like a clumsy lie, doesn't it? Because think about it. While he was alive, Jacob probably had lots of conversations with Joseph about his brothers. Uh, you know, long before he died, they, they talked a lot. And Jacob knew Joseph's heart. Jacob knew Joseph didn't have any bitterness toward his brothers. Joseph had told his brothers he didn't have any bitterness. He wasn't holding against against them. But at this moment, his brothers are not so sure. Jacob's dead. And they had been pretty sinful all for many, many, many years. They'd been horribly deceptive and, and, and disgusting, you know, selling him into slavery. So they think maybe Joseph's holding that bitterness and maybe he's being deceptive toward them like they were him. Made sense to them at the moment anyway. 
Now, we know Joseph had an entirely different perspective on the whole thing, and he's already made that clear to them, but they don't quite get it. So in verse 18, his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we're your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear. Am I in the place of God? In other words, I'm not God, fellas. <laughs> there is a God. If he wants to punish you, that's between you and him. But that's not my thing, Joseph said. That's not my responsibility. That's between you guys and the Lord. Far be it from me. And then he utters the words we have recorded in verse 20. And it turns out, I think, to be one of the most significant verses in the Bible. Very powerful and very hard to understand when we think about it. But listen to this. As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Doesn't that sound like Jesus? Do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. <laughs> Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Another pointer towards Jesus, don't you think? You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. It's one of those things is if we, the more we think about it, it's kind of hard for us to wrap our minds around it. Think about this. Why was Joseph in Egypt? Was it because of the sin of his brothers? Or was it because of the plan of God? We probably know the answer is both, right? You remember when Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came on the church at Pentecost, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak, and other people were attracted to what was going on. They heard the rushing mighty wind. They heard these people speaking in their own languages, even though they didn't know their languages. And, 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 and then God inspires Peter to get up and preach, and he preaches an incredibly powerful message. And down in verse 22, he said, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know what he's saying. He said, none of this was done in a corner, as Paul told Agrippa later on. This, this was out in the open. It's public. You know, thousands of people were with Jesus. Thousands of people saw him doing miracles. God attested that this is my son. Verse 23, this Jesus, Peter said, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You hear that? Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But he said it was the definite plan of God. But they did it. So wait a minute. If it really is the plan of God... For Joseph to be sold into slavery and then delivered up to an Egyptian prison. And it was. And if it really was the plan of God for Jesus to be beaten horrifically and nailed to a cross. And it was. Does that mean that the men who did it are off the hook? Are they not really guilty? Are they just like pawns that God's moving around on his great chessboard? And really they didn't have any control because it was God's plan? It's hard for us to wrap our brains around that. Charles Spurgeon wrote this, How wonderfully those two things meet in practical harmony. The free will of man and the predestination of God. Man acts just as freely and just as guiltily as if there were no predestination whatsoever. And God ordains and arranges and supervises and overrules just as accurately if there were no free will in the universe. So, what does this mean? I mean, is everything foreordained according to God's plan? 
I heard James Kennedy dealing with this question uh, several years ago in a message, because he's been dead for many years now. You may remember James Kennedy. He was a great Presbyterian pastor at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, for many, many years, and a pretty deep thinker. And he was trying to deal with this in his congregation. And he was saying that some of us try to get around foreordination and predestination by appealing to God's foreknowledge, we will say, well, God didn't really predestine it. He really didn't foreordain it. He just foreknew that it would happen. But Kennedy said, it's not quite that easy. He said, we really can't separate those two. Then he asked his congregation this simple question. He said, do you think God knew you were going to be here today, even before time began? Isn't God omniscient? Doesn't God know everything from the very beginning? And, of course, everybody said, yes, nodded their heads. Yeah, God knew we'd be here. Then Kennedy asked, okay, well, then what if you didn't show up? And his point was, if God foreknew it, then in some sense, at least, it's foreordained. It's going to have to happen if God foreknew it. Now, that doesn't mean, please don't, please don't lose me here. <laughs> Stay with me. That doesn't mean we're not responsible for our choices. The Bible couldn't be more clear about that. God has made us free moral agents. We have choices to make all through life. And we have to live or sometimes die with the consequences of those choices. You understand that? Very clear. We know it from personal experience. We know it from God's Word. And we can't just shift the blame back to God. You say, I'm not sure I can understand that. Well, join the club. Nobody really can. There are many, many things about God we can't wrap our little tiny brains around yet. So we trust Him and we obey Him. Trust and obey makes a great song title, doesn't it? Charles Spurgeon also said this. He said, from outside, looking toward the door of heaven, we see the words, whosoever will may come. But he said, once through the door, we look back and we see these words on the door, chosen from the foundation of the world. Both are true. And the things we don't understand right now, maybe we'll understand it better someday. We'll understand it all by and by and make another good song. Maybe, maybe, maybe we'll never really fully grasp this. You know, we're not God. That's for sure. Now, stay with me. One of the most important truths in the Bible is that no one, no man, no demon can get to us without going through the Father, right? You understand that. We're in the Father's hands. So this is important. When bad things happen to us, just like Joseph, one of the most important things we can remember is that Satan or even other people sometimes may really have meant it for evil, trying to hurt us, harm us. But God is able, in spite of them, to use it for our good. And he uses those kind of experiences to teach us valuable character qualities like trusting him or waiting on him, persevering rejoicing in all things, learning to give thanks in everything, learning to conquer fear and worry. You know, so many lessons we learn during these difficult times. And it reminds us, you probably have already thought of it, and another one of our favorite verses is Romans chapter 8. And we know that God causes all things, all things, all things to work together for good to those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. A little bit further in that chapter, he says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who's against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? 
A little bit further, he says this, Who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, a lot of them are going through tribulation, or distress, or persecution, a lot of persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, just as it is written, for your sake we're being put to death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. And then that awesome chapter 8 of Romans ends like this. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So listen, guys. Next time someone on the job, or in your home, family member maybe, or maybe a neighbor, or maybe a stranger, or maybe somebody down at the school, or maybe even somebody in the church, or somebody in your sports program, or some demon tries to hurt you, tries to throw you for a loop, says some bad things about you, is mean to you, don't get bitter. Just remember the words of Joseph. You may have meant it evil against me, but God meant it for good every time. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this awesome account that you've given us of the life of Joseph. And thank you. We are amazed, Lord, at the way you've engineered things in this life to remind us of Jesus and to teach us really incredibly important things as you prepare us for our being with you in eternity. But we thank you so much for the life of Joseph recorded in Genesis. Thank you so much for the way you led him through this very horrific experience one after another, from the pit to slavery to imprisonment. And then just almost overnight, just in a moment, you raise him up to be prime minister of Egypt. And you point us to Jesus. We thank you that Jesus was willing to leave your throne and come down here and live in a world of, that's enslaved to sin. And, and, and instead of giving in to it, he simply obeyed you and went to the cross and died for our sins. And then rising up the third day and ascending into heaven in glory. Lord, what an awesome thing Jesus has done for us. And what an awesome thing that you pointed to Jesus, even in the book of Genesis, over and over. So thank you for this. And Lord, I pray you'd help us to learn not just these wonderful truths, but also, Lord, to learn that when things are going bad for us, when people are hurting us or mistreating us or saying bad things about us, lying about us, that you have a purpose, you have a plan, you're working it out for good, and help us to be able to say, as Joseph did, these people may have meant it for evil, but you, our Lord, meant it for good and that we'll keep that peace and that joy that only you can give. So thank you for what you're teaching us. Help us to be a little bit more like Joseph and a lot more like Jesus, our main model, our main example, and our Savior. We pray in his name. Amen.